Well, Heavenly Father, we're so grateful to you, Lord, once again, for the privilege of coming into your word. The fact that we have, as believers, freedom to open up our Bibles and learn about your character, about your great plan of salvation for sinners, how you are glorifying yourself in the exaltation of your Son. What a privilege that we have to do that. I pray, Father, this morning that you would give us tender hearts, receptive hearts to your word, that we might be people who respond, Lord, um, actively in the power of your Spirit, seeking that you would change the way that we think about life and that we would think more and more your thoughts and our outlook and perspective of life. Help us, Father, that we would be people who would turn from our sin today. Those things that are hindering us from having an active, diligent pursuit of you that is um, uh, in cultivating holiness in our life. I pray that, Lord, we might be doers of your word today, people who apply your word to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, our text for this morning is Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 7. So if you can turn your Bibles there. Uh, Our morning's sermon is entitled, Life in Christ. Life in Christ. And I want to read Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 as we begin. The Word of God says this, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted And now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Great text of Scripture that we have the blessing of looking at this morning. You know, this week has been uh, quite the eventful week, as you know, for the life of the Hernandez family. Um, As many of you are aware, we were preparing to move this past week. And then yesterday, uh, all of that culminated in us uh, moving from one house to another here in Burbank. Uh, Praise the Lord uh, that he did that. And, um, you know, on behalf of my family, and I want to just thank uh, each of you and you as a corporate body for praying for us in that move. And just for the many of you who um, just loved on us. uh, And ultimately, I know that your service is unto Christ, but you just served so selflessly and came alongside of us to really relieve Uh, that burden of our move. And I just want to thank you. And especially my brother, Len Bentley, who is in here. He just did an amazing job coordinating all of the efforts behind the scenes. And brother, thank you so much, Len. We just want to uh, express our appreciation to you. And I know that it wasn't easy to get 40, 50 people uh, coordinated and mobilized. But thank you, Len, uh, for everything that you did, brother. You know, but moving is not, it's not an enjoyable process, is it? (laughs) I mean, brothers like Len make it so much more enjoyable. But no matter what you do to prepare and everything, it's still a very messy process. I mean, you have things lying around everywhere. You know, this last week, I mean, confusion and chaos permeated everything, you know. And what's worse is that as you pack more and more things um, uh, and you're putting things in boxes, the more that you assume that things are going to be in their normal place, Uh, And they are no longer there, right? Uh, I found myself many a time this week asking my family uh, questions about where things were. You know, honey, where are the cups and plates? Packed. The ladies came and packed those. Honey, where are my collared shirts? Packed. Honey, where are the Q-tips? Packed. Honey, where's the shaving cream and where's the shaver? You know, thank the Lord that I found that one. (laughs) 
those two items. Otherwise, I would be an even more pathetic-looking man this morning than I already am. So I found that. Somebody said this morning when I was getting mic'd, you know, you clean up really good, because yesterday I looked awful after a week of packing and stuff. So thank the Lord I did find my shaving cream and my shaver, and we were able to get that done. You know, moving has a way of making life less than normal, right? Uh, Less than optimal. And um, sometimes in the Christian life, things can be that way as well. Um, confusion and chaos and disorder may exist when we become distracted by many of the worries and influences of the world. Um, in some way, we lose our, our way just in our walk with the Lord. Uh, things get so complicated and busy in the Christian life that we lose uh, that, that uh, beautiful love bond relationship with the Lord that we should be experiencing. And that sense of, of sweetness that we once experienced with Christ seems to be non-existent or far-reaching. That can happen in the Christian life as well. Which one of us have not experienced a loss of focus and perspective in our Christian walk, right? Each and every one of us can attest to that. You know, in the same way, the Colossian church, to some extent or another, was experiencing some of the same. The Christian life had become somewhat unfocused, Maybe a bit complicated and misguided for some of these Colossian believers. They were dangerously being distracted away from Christ, redirected away from Him. In one sense, they had lost that sense of sweetness and closeness to the Lord. Because they had to some extent allowed their convictions to be put out of order and misplaced as well. And still... As Paul has reminded us in the first chapter and then some verses in the second chapter, they have remained faithful to Christ in the midst of their struggles, in the midst of their difficulties. Uh, Paul, we saw in chapter 1, he affirms them and thanks the Lord for the the work that God has has done in their hearts and lives. And then in chapter 2 and verse 5 that we saw last week, he expresses confidence um, in them and, and affirms them amidst his loving concern and his warnings to them to remain steadfast. And now, here in these verses, on the heels of having expressed his loving concern for them, Paul is going to draw out some implications from them, uh, for them for the, from this point on in light of everything that he has said about the Lord Jesus Christ and their relationship with him. And in a sense, verses 6-7 through seven are going to be verses where Paul is instructing them about practical Christianity 101. Things that they should already know or they have known to be true. And the application of those truths for their Christian walk. Paul is going to remind these believers and us of what life in Christ consists of. And as he talks to them about life in Christ, he does so by way of a reminder and then a command that he gives in these verses. A reminder and a command that they would be people who abide in Christ And that they would live mindful of His all-sufficiency for their every spiritual need. So I want to talk to you about life in Christ. And I want us to look first and foremost at Paul's reminder here. Paul reminds them of the essential commitment that is required for life in Christ. That's your first point. The essential commitment for life in Christ. A commitment that the Colossians had already made. Look at what he says in verse 6. Therefore... As you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in Him. The first imperative 
or command in the letter of Colossians appears right here in verse 6. So walk in Him. But what I want you to notice is that before Paul exhorts them to walk in Christ, he reminds them that this walk is to be done as you received Christ Jesus the Lord. He reminds them of their, of their initial commitment, which is necessary. In other words, your inception into life in Christ is to be the pattern for continuing in Christ. And he re- reminds them of that inception into their life in Christ. And he begins his exhortation with the word therefore in verse 6, as you've noticed, which really points back to everything that Paul has said in chapters 1 and into chapter 2 to this point. As we have seen, Paul has made some astounding claims concerning Christ that fly in the face of what the false teachers were teaching the Colossian believers. And the Colossians, though certainly struggling, had embraced the truth about Christ. Which is why Paul says, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord. From the moment of their conversion, the Colossian believers had received the gospel and the teaching from, about Christ from Epaphras, as we saw in chapter 1, verses 7 through 8. They responded with repentance and obedient faith to that proclamation of the gospel of Christ, according to verse 4 of chapter 1. And not only that, but according to chapter 1, verse 6, as we've seen, they were constantly bearing fruit and increasing. These believers were growing. Now, it was not that they had received some impersonal message, some philosophy, some form of mysticism, or some works-based lifestyle directive. If you notice in verse 6, he says, they have received Christ Jesus the Lord. They have received Christ Jesus the Lord. They received a person. They had entered a relationship. They had entered into a love bond relationship with Christ. Into fellowship with Christ. A shared life with Christ. After all, isn't this what Christianity is all about? It is about our relationship with Jesus. It's not about keeping a a standard of do's and don'ts detached from a loving relationship with God. Christianity, beloved, is about entering a relationship with God by faith in Christ. It says that Paul is saying here, do you remember, Colossians, that you entered into a, a, a sweet, love bond relationship with Christ? And how sweet that is, isn't it? That we can all look back and remember when we received Christ. When that transformation took place in our lives. This unique uh, wording by Paul here in verse 6 doesn't appear anywhere else in the New Testament. Literally, verse 6 says, As you have received the Christ Jesus, the Lord. Nowhere else in the New Testament are you going to find this phrase structured this particular way. And it seems as if Paul wants no confusion about who he's talking about here. He wants to remind the Colossians that they have received the one who is the long-awaited and promised Messiah. That's what Christ means, Messiah, anointed one. The one who came in fulfillment of all of the Old Testament promises of God. This one is Jesus. Yes, the Jesus of Nazareth who walked among them as 100% God in human flesh. Paul wants there to be no confusion. But this Christ Jesus, notice in verse 6, is also the Lord. The Lord. He is Christ Jesus who is the Lord. 
He is the sovereign ruler and king who indisputably reigns and has no rivals. Isn't this precisely the point that Paul has been making to this point in all of Colossians 1? That Christ Jesus is Lord. That Christ is the one who is equal with the Father, who is supreme over creation and in redemption, who is the sovereign ruler and head of the church, who alone guides and directs His church and sustains His people. The one through whom the Father has reconciled sinful men to Himself, who is to have first place in everything. And as we saw last week, this one, Jesus Christ, who is Lord, the one in whom are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul has been making the point that Christ Jesus is Lord. It is believed that the acknowledgement of Jesus as Lord was the ultimate Christian confession of believers in the early church. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9 that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5, Paul says to the Corinthians, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Philippians chapter 2 verse 11 says that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In Acts 2, toward the end of his first sermon, after the arrival of the Holy Spirit, Peter says that God has made him, Jesus, God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So the Colossians had made an essential commitment about Christ. Specifically, they had acknowledged that Christ Jesus is Lord. The same commitment, beloved, is essential for anyone who wants a life in Christ. For anyone who wants to be delivered from their sins. You must acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. You must receive Him. And to receive Christ means to believe what the Bible claims concerning Christ, that He is Lord. And all of the implications and ramifications of that great, marvelous statement and reality and truth that Christ is Lord. You must believe what the Bible says concerning Christ. That He is the perfect God-man, supreme over all creation. That He is the only Redeemer and Savior. That He's the only perfect and sinless sacrifice for your sins. That He alone lived the perfect, righteous life in complete fulfillment, perfect fulfillment of His Father's will. That He alone suffered and died for your sins, satisfying the fullness of the just wrath of God for your sins. Only Christ's death, as Brother Bob Powell um, instructed us earlier, is sufficient to save us, to deliver us from the wrath of God. You must believe that Jesus suffered and died for your sins. That He alone was raised from the dead, victorious over sin and death. To receive Him, you must believe these glorious truths about Christ. Christ is Lord And to receive Him means that you respond with obedient faith to God's loving command to you. To repent and believe in Jesus who is Lord. 
You must turn from your sins and plead for God's forgiveness found only in Christ. You must cease to worship the idol of self and acknowledge for the rest of your life that He alone is master and ruler of your life, that what Jesus says alone goes. And to obey Him becomes the greatest joy and the delight of your life. For the Lord Jesus is the most loving master, is He not? He's the most loving master who laid down His life for you with joy to the glory of His Father because He greatly had compassion and mercy upon us. But as many as received Him, as received Christ, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. Romans 10.9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, you will be saved. The essential response to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ is to believe in Him, to embrace Him for who the Bible claims Him to be. Now listen, you know this, that Christ Jesus is the Lord of this universe and is to be the one that every tongue should confess flies in the face of what the Colossian false teachers were teaching. And frankly, it it flies in the face of what most perspectives in this world are teaching. People don't want to hear or acknowledge Christ Jesus as Lord of their lives, do they? Because if you acknowledge that Jesus is Lord of your life, then that means that you no longer rule yourself. That means the idol of self no longer reigns. This is why the person and the work of Christ is always the lightning rod issue for people, isn't it? If you are witnessing, as soon as you get to the person of Christ, people put their dukes up. As soon as you do that. If you want to cut to the chase when you're witnessing to someone from another religion, ask them who they believe Jesus to be. And let's see how that conversation goes. Just ask them. Because very quickly, you're going to get an array of different answers about who Jesus is. Cults, like Jehovah's Witnesses, don't believe that Jesus is God. He is someone less than God. Cults like Mormons say that Jesus is the brother of Lucifer and many other heresies that are totally and completely untrue concerning Christ. They don't acknowledge that Christ is Lord of the universe. Other religions believe that Jesus was merely a great moral teacher, one of the great prophets of old, a great compassionate human being who we should certainly respect and emulate, but not worship as the supreme one of the universe. There are many, many damning lesser perspectives, beloved, of who Christ is. But if you want forgiveness for your sins and you want to be reconciled to your Maker, you must believe that Jesus is who the Bible says He is. That He alone is Savior of your personal sins, and He alone is Lord. And the appropriate response is obedient repentance, a turning from your sins and a receiving of Christ, a trusting in Christ. This is what it means to receive Christ Jesus, the Lord. And the Colossians had made this necessary commitment to believe in those claims as Jesus, of Jesus Christ as Lord. And they had believed in Him. They had received Him as Lord and Savior. I want to ask you this morning, have you made this commitment? 
This essential commitment. Do you believe that Jesus is Lord? Have you confessed Him as Lord of your life? As the only one sufficient to save you from your sins? To deliver you from your predicament? From which you cannot save yourself? Christ is Lord alone. And thus, He is the only one that qualifies to be the all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. Have you committed your life to trusting in that sacrifice? as the only basis upon which you can be forgiven of your sins and restored to God. For us who profess to know Christ, professing believers, when you made a commitment to follow Jesus, is this the Christ that you trusted and still trust in? The one who is supreme, the one who is the Lord of your life, that you daily seek to please Because, beloved, if there is no salvation without loving obedience to Christ as Lord of your life, there is no salvation. If as a pattern of your life, you do not acknowledge Christ as Lord of your life, Lord of your heart, Lord of your thoughts, Lord of your motivations, Lord of your words and your actions and your perspective and how you carry about your priorities in life, This is an essential commitment to believe in who Jesus is and respond to Him by obedient faith. And without that, there is no salvation. You are still dead in your sins. You are still dead in your sins. Well, the Colossians had made this necessary commitment, this essential commitment for life in Christ. And Paul wants them to remember their precious inception into life in Christ. Now what he does next is essentially says this, in light of the fact that Christ Jesus is Lord, then Christians, He should be your everything. He should be your very life. You should look to Him for all of your spiritual needs as you did in the beginning coming bankrupt before God, offering nothing but your sin, that He would wipe that away by the blood of Christ. In fact, in chapter 3 of Colossians verse 4, Paul says, Christ is our life. He is more than just the inception into salvation. He is to be the one that is to dominate our thinking. We are to lead our life in accordance with Him. So our second point here is, I want us to look at the command here. The command that Paul gives in the middle of verse 6. We've seen the essential commitment for life in Christ. Notice secondly, the obedient pursuit of life in Christ. The obedient pursuit of of life in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Paul says, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, in other words, you've made the essential commitment to him, you've acknowledged who he is and his great claims as the supreme one, preeminent one in your life who alone can save, so walk in him. Lead your life in accordance with him. Abide in Christ is another way of putting it. Paul is now drawing out the implications, in other words, of all that he has said about Christ's person and work in the previous chapter and a half. And he said, in the light of who Christ is and what he has done, this is how you ought to live. This is how you ought to lead your life. It is not enough to come to Christ, beloved, and put life on cruise control, is it? We don't put life on cruise control when we're converted. 
We don't go into passive complacency and lethargy. The Christian life is all about an active, aggressive pursuit of intimacy with Jesus. And that's a lifetime endeavor. Douglas Moo writes this very insightfully, quote, Because we have received Christ, we are to live in a way that shows that He is indeed Savior and Lord of our lives. If He is such, then He is to be our all-sufficiency in all spiritual matters. Therefore, walk in Him. End quote. You know this word walk? It is a metaphor for how you live your life, for your conduct. Our walk, by the way, includes our, our attitudes, our motives, our thinking. I want to ask you, is Christ reigning supreme in your internal life? Has Christ made His home in your life? Is His Word dwelling in you richly? Our walk includes our words and our actions. I want to ask you, are you characterized as a believer by diligently striving to obey Christ? Would that be what people say, mark your life, that you are a person who who struggles and you have weaknesses of your own, but you are striving to lovingly obey Christ? Our walk includes our values, our priorities, our perspective. I want to ask you, is Christ shaping the way that you view the world around you, your outlook and your perspective of life? Or are you adopting the world's thinking as believers? Part of our walk, our conduct, is that active pursuit of Christ whereby we are renewing our minds by the Spirit, uh, by the Holy Spirit in and through God's Word. So all of this is included under how you walk or how you and I lead our life in Christ. Our attitudes, our motives, our thinking, our words, our actions, our values, our priorities, our perspective and our outlook on life. What Paul is doing here is commanding these believers to live like those who are in relationship with Christ. To live out the implications of that great reality of what God has done. Back in chapter 1 and verse 10, if you remember, many, many years ago, weeks ago, many weeks ago, in chapter 1 verse 10, he said to them that they should walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That they should walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Essentially, that's what Paul is exhorting them to do once again here in chapter 2 and verse 6. The pattern of our life should be lived seeking to abide in Christ, to please Christ, to pattern our lives after the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how does Paul command them to an active pursuit of Christ here? How does he do that? What Paul is going to do in verse 7 is elaborate and expand upon what this walk in Christ means. These are things that they, that they know already, that they've been instructed in already, in this teaching and the ramifications of that particular teaching. And he does it via four participles. He's going to expand and elaborate upon this walk in Christ and what it means via four participles in verse 7, which describe our pursuit of life in Christ. And if you're taking notes, these are four sub-points under your second major point of our obedient pursuit of life in Christ. First of all, I want you to notice in verse 7, the basis of our pursuit of Christ. The basis of our pursuit of Christ. He says in verse 7, having been firmly rooted. Having been firmly rooted. The tenses of these participles are very important. 
because this first participle here, having been firmly rooted, is what is known as a perfect tense verb. And what a perfect tense verb points to is a completed action in the past with the results of that completed action continuing into the present time. It is a passive voice verb, which means that the action here was done to them. It was done to them. In other words, God had already firmly rooted these believers in the soil of Christ, if you will. Like a beautiful redwood tree whose, whose roots go deep into the soil and towers high into the sky, so you and I, when we were saved, were firmly rooted by Almighty God in the soil of Christ. He did that. He did that. The basis of our pursuit of Christ is God's amazing work in us, first and foremost, beloved. First and foremost. As we walk in Christ, we remember that the only reason why it is possible to walk in a manner worthy of Christ, to walk in Him as we're commanded in this verse 6, is because God, by His Spirit, has done His transforming work in our hearts. Otherwise, we would not be able to live godly lives apart from His work in us. It would be impossible. Isn't that a great comforting reminder for us? We who are believers, who who struggle with our sin, who fail in our walk with Christ. The great reminder is that ultimately, this whole thing is not left up to us. Otherwise, we would lose our salvation, would we not? It is not in our hands. That's why Paul says to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 1, I am confident of this very thing, that He, God, who began a good work in you, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So remember, as you pursue Christ, as you walk with Christ, when you fail and when there's sin and you're struggling, the basis of your pursuit of Christ and the fact that you will persevere is God's amazing transforming work in and and through your life and the power of His Spirit. Second, notice in verse 7, the goal of our pursuit of Christ. The goal of our pursuit of Christ. He says in verse 7, And now being built up in Him. And now being built up in Him. Now this participle here is a present passive verb, which means that in the present, believers, those who have been firmly rooted in Christ by God, are continually being built up, edified by God, as we pursue Christ, as we walk with Christ. The imagery here is of a building which is being built upon a solid, sure foundation. And that sure foundation is Christ. It's in Him upon which our lives are being built. And our responsibility, of course, is to stay connected to Christ. To submit ourselves to Christ's Lordship. To stay focused upon Christ. To make sure that our faith is fixed upon Christ as our only solid rock and foundation. Now listen, beloved, God by His Spirit does this building up. In the end, it is God who is doing this transforming work in and through His Spirit, but He does it through specific means that require our maximum effort in the power of His Spirit. Our maximum effort, our relentless pursuit. God builds us up through His Word and prayer, does He not? Through His Word and prayer. He does it through His people, through the church. 
This is why in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16, it says that Christ has given gifts and gifted individuals to his church for the building up of itself in love. So we are built up and edified as we're invested in one another, using our spiritual gifts and our God-given abilities for the purpose of building others up and vice versa. This is God's beautiful design for the building up of his church. As you serve other people, as you are actively involved in the body, God is building you up. He's teaching you to be more selfless like His Son. He's teaching you to be others-focused, as Christ was the ultimate example of that. He's building you up. Listen, growing and being built up does not just happen, does it? It doesn't just happen. God doesn't want us to have this attitude of let go and let God. He doesn't want us to have that attitude. He wants our active, relentless participation, saturating ourselves in God's word, communing with God in prayer, so that as we come to God in prayer, he is changing the desires of our hearts and aligning our will with his will. He wants us to be pursuing him, communing with him. He wants faithful service in the body of Christ, the church. Involvement in the body is a great means by which God is building you and I up, beloved. Involvement in the church is part and parcel of what it means to walk in Christ. As you walk in Christ by pursuing Him in His Word, communing with God in prayer, faithfully serving the Lord and His people, being committed to the church, you will be edified and built up in the faith. Growth and maturity will be affected in your life. Thirdly, Notice in verse 7, the result of our pursuit of Christ. The result of our pursuit of Christ. He says, and established in your faith. And established in your faith. This is another present passive verb here. It's significant. As you walk with Christ, as you pursue Christ, God is continually working in you to establish you in your faith. To establish means to make secure to stabilize you, to firm you up, to make you strong. You know what is a wonderful thing about our Heavenly Father? He wants strong believers, fully equipped for every good work that He has called us to perform. He wants that for us. He wants us to be strong. Here in Southern California, we're used to earthquakes, right? And in the event of an earthquake, who cares how beautiful a building or a house may be? Who cares? We want that beautiful house or that beautiful building to be secure, to be firm, stable, established, and strong. Otherwise, in the event of an earthquake, it's going to fall no matter how beautiful it may be on the outside. You want a stable, secure place. So does our great Heavenly Father. He wants stability in the Christian life. He wants strong children of His, fully equipped for every good work. That's the way it is in the Christian life as well. He's strengthening us and establishing us so that we would be firm and stable in our faith. That we would have the kind of faith, beloved, that is approved, that holds on to Christ alone in difficulties. And we're not trusting in ourselves or other things rather than Christ. That's the kind of faith that He wants. An approved kind of faith. Establishing and strengthening our faith is one of the great objectives of God bringing trials and sufferings to our lives 
as hard as those may be. This is why James 1 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. When God brings trials and sufferings into your life and into my life, He has good intentions, beloved. Trials and sufferings coupled with a right response to those mature us into greater Christ-likeness. When we respond in trust to God's promises in the midst of our trials and sufferings, obedient to His Word without reservations in our trials and our sufferings, God establishes us, stabilizes us, strengthens us in the faith. I grieve that many Christians... Many of us don't grow stronger in our faith precisely because we fail to obey the truth continually imparted to us. Some Christians can spend years and years not growing or maturing very much because they are continually instructed and yet they don't respond in obedience to the truth of God's Word. And thus, there's no firmness, there's no stability. There's no establishing. There's no strength there. Always doubting. Always skeptical about what God says. Always compromising with sin. Always wavering in your obedience. Thinking that half-hearted or partial obedience is God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, Spirit-empowered obedience. It isn't. And it's not going to lead to strengthening in your life. Beloved, there is nothing sadder than a defeated Christian by choice. Nothing sadder than a defeated Christian by choice. Because you have everything that pertains to life and godliness as a believer and the empowerment of the Spirit of God and the guidance of God's Holy Word and you by choice are living compromising with sin in your life. And thus you're never established. You're never firm in the faith. And sadly, such Christians, as the Colossian believers, some of them perhaps, are susceptible to every wind of doctrine, to every new wave of worldly thinking, to every new fad in the world around us, to everything the news says, to everything politics is informing us about. You're wavering back and forth, and God is nowhere to be seen in that equation, in your thinking. You are not God-conscious. And you're giving into every passing pleasure. Beloved, God doesn't want you to be there. If you're a believer, God desires that those whom He has firmly rooted in Christ would walk in Christ so that you might continually be built up, established in your faith. That's what He desires. He has every good intention for us in that matter in our sanctification. Finally, We've seen the basis, the goal, the result of our pursuit of Christ. Fourthly, notice the attitude of our pursuit of Christ. The attitude of our pursuit of Christ. Notice what he says in verse 7. And overflowing with gratitude. And overflowing with gratitude. This is the only participle that is in the present active voice. Meaning that this is something we are called to continually do in our walk with Christ. 
All of the others have been in the passive voice. Work that God, as we walk with Christ, is doing in and through us. He's the one that's bringing about Christ-likeness in an ultimate sense in our lives. Now we, in our response to God's work in our lives, and of course are submitting ourselves to His leading, the appropriate response is continually giving thanks. Being people who are characterized by gratitude as we pursue Christ and we walk with Christ, beloved. This only happens, of course, this type of attitude of gratitude and thanksgiving only happens to those who are walking with Christ as verse 6 commands us. When you and I are communing with Christ, we are submitting ourselves to His Spirit's leading. When we are being guided by by the Word of God, saturated by the Word of God, having our minds renewed by the Word of God and responding in loving obedience to the Word, and putting off sin in life, turning from those sins that are prevailing in our Christianity, we will be thankful people. People full of gratitude. And notice, not just thanksgiving, but abounding in thanksgiving, overflowing in thanksgiving is a sense here. Listen, this is not just private thanksgiving in your heart. This is, this is public Gratitude or thanksgiving that is visibly seen, that is evident to others. Can I put it this way? That is expressed not only to God, but to other people genuinely from your heart, even in the midst of the sufferings and the trials that you may be experiencing in life. This is expressed gratitude. Expressed in prayer, expressed in our conversations with one another, expressed in our, in our relationships with other people, other believers, expressed to the unbelieving world around us, beloved, who does not acknowledge God or give thanks, but they become foolish in their speculations and in their vanity. That is one of the great marks in Romans chapter 1 of why God has given people over to their sin because they do not give thanks. They are not people who acknowledge Him as Creator or give thanks for the continual blessings that He bestows upon them. Not so for believers. Not so for believers who are actively pursuing Christ, who are walking with Christ. Thanksgiving should be the norm for us who are believers. This is why the Psalms are so filled with praises and abounding thanksgiving. This is what we were created to do, beloved, to to praise God. And to give Him thanks for all of the wonderful blessings that He bestows upon us. Because He's a good God, is He not? Even in the midst of our wretchedness and our wickedness and our constant complaining and grumbling, He is a good God. So we should be giving Him thanks as the pattern of our life. So listen, life in Christ is an active pursuit where we live mindful of God's amazing work of firmly rooting us in Christ, which is the basis of our pursuit of Christ. And then, as we walk with Christ, as we're commanded to do in verse 6, God is continually building us up in Christ and establishing us in Christ. And in response to all of that, to the work of God in and through us, by His Spirit and His Word, we should be people full of abounding gratitude to Him for all that He has done and continues to do in our lives. Listen, if you have truly received Christ, if you have acknowledged Him as Lord and Savior of your life, if you've been firmly rooted in Christ, then these should be evidences in your life as a pattern. 
Each of us will struggle in our Christian walk. Each of us will have periods of time when we experience weakness and discouragement, or we are not living as we should, as spiritually vibrant as we should in the Christian life. However, as the pattern of our lives, as we walk with Christ and we're pursuing Christ, there should be evidence of growth and maturity and stability in a greater degree, beloved, as well as gratitude. Our reception of Christ becomes then the pattern for our life in Christ. Think about this. How many of us can look back and remember how sweet it was to meet Christ? We can remember that. And yet over the years, something somehow has changed. And we don't seem to to feel the same way anymore. We don't seem to, to have that sweet, closer walk with Christ. Live in the light of that great reality of what God has done in and through our hearts in Christ Jesus. We don't find joy in our relationship with Christ as we should, beloved. Perhaps we have become distracted with other things as the Colossian believers who were being influenced by philosophies and mysticism and religious syncretism, different shades of teaching, rather than Christ who is the substance. They were going after the shadow of things. For us it may be worldliness. For us it may be adopting the thinking patterns of the world rather than Christ's word being that which continually renews our thinking. Can I encourage you? The pathway back to a closer walk with Christ, to vibrancy in life in Christ, is repentance as a believer. It isn't just that when we come to Christ, we turn from our sins, i.e. repentance, and we turn to Christ by faith. We enter a lifetime, beloved, in conversion of repentance and faith, do we not? Not in the sense that you're continually being saved over and over again. No. There is a definitive moment where the new birth takes place and conversion takes place. But we enter now at conversion, at the, in the new birth, into a lifetime of turning from our sins and putting on the righteousness of Christ in our experience. So the pathway back to a closer, intimate walk with Christ is that you repent and you confess to the Lord where you have been going wrong. That you seek His forgiveness. That you ask that He may renew in you a steadfast spirit once again. That you may anew experience the joy of your salvation and vibrant life in Christ. The pathway, beloved, is repentance, confession, a seeking of forgiveness and renewal from the Lord by His Spirit. May the words of that wonderful song of old be the cry of our hearts. Grew up singing that great song that says, Just a closer walk with thee. You remember that song? Just a closer walk with thee. Granted, Jesus is my plea. Daily walking close to thee, let it be, dear Lord. Let it be. Let's pray together. Father, we want to be people who recognize and acknowledge the great work that you have done in our hearts and lives in having rooted us in Christ. Father, help us to remember that in the end, it is not we ourselves who are conforming ourselves into the image of Christ. You are the one who is doing the work in and through us, Lord. 
And yet you require and you command us to this active, diligent pursuit of your Son. That we would walk with him. That we would be in fellowship with him. That we would be people who would look to your word and have our minds renewed daily by your word. Seeking you in prayer and communion with you. Striving to respond to your word with obedient faith. Lord, as we seek intimacy with Jesus, I pray that you might continue to conform us into the image of your Son. Father, we thank you that you are using the trials and the sufferings of our lives to conform us into his image. Help us to embrace the things that we go through, Lord. Help us even to respond with gratitude continually as the pattern of our Christian walk, knowing that you have every good intention even in the trials and the sufferings that you bring, that we may become more and more like your son Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.